0: Before we get into the teaching of the Word, um, I am always humbled to stand here because I do believe that this Bible is inerrant, authoritative, and the actual Word of God. That's a incredible statement and I have the responsibility to stand before you and to teach it. And because of that, I'm deeply humbled. And I know that I need God's Holy Spirit. And so if you would bow with me, I'm going to pray that he would be here with us. Father, as we talk about, through your word, what is happening here On this day of Passover, for the Hebrew nation, the ultimate Lamb of God is in their midst. And they can't see it. As a matter of fact, they're going to take him in front of a kangaroo court. They're going to convict him. And they're going to take him to the cross. And it's not just them. It's us. We miss him. We do not see him when we should. Maybe even today we will not see him as we sit here and listen to the teaching of your word and fellowship with one another. Somehow we'll miss the greatest treasure that ever walked the earth. God, I intercede now for us that we would see Jesus in all his glory for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of the nations I pray in Jesus name. Amen. I titled this sermon when I started this week One Long Day because if you read the whole story from when the day started to when it ended, it was a long day But as I continued to work on the sermon, I realized I might need to rename it One Long Sermon if I wasn't careful. So we're going to have a part one and a part two of One Long Day. And part one, the subheading would be this, Pilate and the Passover. One Long Day, subheading, Pilate and the Passover. To understand this day that is happening here in our scriptures that David read, you have to understand Jewish culture to some degree. And I don't believe that all of us, including me, understand Jewish culture all that well. Probably maybe no one in the room has a Jewish background. And so I'm going to try to do some backfill in terms of understanding what happened on this day. And Michael, what I would like for you to do is to move ahead to a slide that has a Hebrew calendar on it because I think it's important if you could see this up front first. You see at the very top at 12 o'clock, that word, I'm gonna pronounce it in in Hebrew, it's pronounced a different way, but Nissan. we would even say Nisan, um, like the car. You see that it says March and April right there. The reason I wanted you to see this is because in the Hebrew calendar, for 1300 years, they were practicing the Passover in that time period, and the actual Passover day was the 14th of Nisan. Here's what's interesting. The day that they would go and select their Passover lamb, and the lamb, if you don't remember the Passover, in Exodus, God sent his spirit over Egypt because they had the Israelites in slavery. And he said, I'm going to wipe out every firstborn with my spirit unless you take a lamb and slaughter it and take the blood and wipe it over the doorpost. And then when the spirit of death passes by that house, when it sees the blood, the Passover lamb will save that firstborn child. And so from then on, for 1,300 years now, they were practicing the Passover. And what you don't get in just a casual reading of the Bible is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey on the day that Israel had been told for 1,300 years, that's the day you pick your Passover lamb. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey and is, it, he is saying to the nation of Israel and to us, I am the Passover lamb. And later John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, four days later, always in the Jewish calendar, on Nisan 14th, you know what they did? They slaughtered those lambs, and they had a Passover meal. Do you know what day it was that Jesus was crucified? Nisan the 14th. It's not a mistake. They had been practicing this ritual for 1300 years. So, let's look at our text. Look with me in your Bibles at John 18:28. That's the backdrop of what's happening right now. In John 18:28 it says this. <clears throat> then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. Just a few verses before it says Annas was a high priest. He was, but Caiaphas is now the ruling high priest. They led him from the house of Caiaphas, where he's already kind of been interrogated, to the governor's headquarters, which is Pilate. It says, it was early morning... They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. That's an interesting part of the text that most would just read right over. They didn't enter the governor's headquarters. The question when I study this is why? It says, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So the scene is this. John has noted it's early the word early there in the Greek is a word prior. Not like prior, but probably where we get our understanding of it. It refers technically to the fourth watch of the night, which means between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's why it's a long day. is Jesus has already been to Caiaphas, and now he's being marched over to Pilate's home, And they're going to pass judgment on him with this, what I would call a kangaroo court. It's not a real court. It's not a true court. They're just trying to get him crucified. And so the Roman officials would have been up and doing their duties by dawn. There's no reason to believe that it was anywhere but around 6 a.m. that they knock on the door of Pilate. And so, did you catch anything in there? Well, you caught the six o'clock, yes. Here's where I'm going. God had orchestrated this whole set of events and brought them to take place on the exact day and times Necessary to communicate his reigning sovereignty over human history. The Passover had been built into the fabric of the lives and the calendars, pointing them, pointing the Hebrew nation to the coming Lamb to be slain. It's like in the Old Testament, God has given them messianic promises. Some theologians call it a messianic profile. But the problem is, they're not all just lined up real easy to understand in the Old Testament. But what God is doing in the New Testament for us and for them is He's putting some of the last pieces of the mosaic, if you've ever seen a mosaic, He's putting some of the last pictures in place so that when we read the Old Testament and we look at the New Testament, the mosaic goes, bam, oh wow, that's what was happening. Other theologians say, The Old Testament is shadows. The New Testament is the reality. We get the shadows of what is going to happen and what God is doing in the Old Testament through the Passover, the ritual. God is using that Passover to show us that eventually I'm going to send the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, those lambs, they really didn't save anybody. They were symbolic of the blood and the life of Christ that was to come. And so that's why there was a Passover. I ask if you caught it because clearly the high priest and the Jews did not catch it. The high priest goal Was to get them to get Jesus to Pilate's house early enough in the morning because now, by now, think about it people are coming into Jerusalem from all over the region with their families and they're coming for this Passover event. It's a once a year deal, and so Jerusalem would be like a bustling city already by that time in the morning. And what the high priest were thinking is we got to get him to Pilate and we got to get Pilate to rubber stamp our decision, so that we can get him crucified, because if we don't get him crucified early and quickly, we're going to have to wait for days to get through this Passover celebration. And so there's a rush to get him to Pilate, to get Pilate to make the decision, and to get the people to vote yes, and that's what you're seeing in the text. It was important to get him convicted early and quick. On Passover Eve, a representative from the family took their purchase to the temple. You see, as they would come into Jerusalem, the families would go to a vendor that would sell these blameless and spotless lambs, and they would buy one for their family. And they would take that to the, uh, they, the representative from each family would take that to the temple. And at the appointed time, the gates of the temple would open, much like if you've ever been to a a really exciting sporting event, and everybody's waiting outside, and, you know, they open the gates, and everybody runs in like uh, it's the last opportunity in life to see something fun. All of these people are running into there, all of them holding their sacrifices in their hand, filed in lines up in front of all these priests, And the priests themselves are lined up in rows in the temple courtyard. And there's, you know, dozens of priests lined up. Once the courtyard was full, the gates would close and the mass slaughter would begin. Each representative, each family head would hand his or her sheep or goat to the priest, he would kill that animal, and he would carefully collect the blood in a bowl. And then once the bowl was filled with that blood from the sacrifice of that animal, it was transferred to the priest beside him, and then the priest beside him, because they were lined up in such a way that they could hand it, and hand it, and hand it, and hand it, until it got to the priest beside the altar, and the priest beside the altar would take that sacrifice that bowl of blood and he would pour it on the altar and each family would do this and after the blood had been completely collected and the priest handed it the now dead animal would be the representative for that family was taken and it was hung on a hook and the Levites who were the priest they would come over and they would remove the skin and they would remove the innards And they would take it to the altar to be burned. And once this was done, the representative each took back their dead animal and left the temple. And they went back to their family and they roasted the meat. And it's important. They roasted their meat on a pomegranate branch and they ate it in a festive night meal. All of this had been going on for 1,300 years. You know how long we've been a nation? I should have done the math before I got up here. About 250 years. Yeah. They had been doing this for 1,300 years. They knew this ritual. But notice, the priest in our text, it's interesting It says, the priest did not enter the house, I said I'd come back to this, in order not to be defiled. Why would entering Pilate's house defile them? Why would that be? What did it mean for a Jew to be ceremonially unclean? Well, they had several things in the Old Testament. They called them purity laws. And what I want to communicate as quickly as possible in this area is that basically they believed if you touched or were around a dead person when you were clean, it would make you unclean. And there were other things that would make you unclean, like skin diseases, things like that. And if you became unclean, especially if you were a Levite, a priest, you could not go near the temple. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus 15.31, it says... Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my temple that is in their midst. What was the rationale for the purity laws? What's the big deal in the Old Testament? Remember, I said the Old Testament you have shadows, the New Testament you have the realities the rationale for the purity laws was this. The central lesson that they conveyed through that system of clean and unclean was God is holy. Like, think of the most pure thing you could ever think of and then that's not even close. God is the most beautiful, righteous good, true, holy being in the universe. And the rationale for the purity laws is that human beings are sinful and contaminated and without a cleansing they cannot be even in the presence of a holy God. And here's the thing, you can't understand Sin until you really understand God's holiness. You can't really grapple and understand hell, punishment, judgment until you understand holiness. Why so much blood? Hebrews 9:22 says it this way. Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. So what's the big deal with blood in the Bible? You've probably stood in this very church and sang this song, I would be willing to bet. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Here's the thing. The issue is more about death than blood. Why do I say that? Blood is essential fluid of life. No blood, no life. The blood represents life, and the shedding of the blood represents death. Now, here's the way the Old Testament said it. The punishment for sin is death. It starts all the way back in Genesis 2 when God said to Adam, of the tree of the... uh, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, sin brings death. In the New Testament, in Romans 6.23, it says in Paul's letter, he writes that the wages of sin is death. We don't use that word wage very much. What that word means is what you earn... What you get for your sin is death. And so the Bible is clearly saying God has set up a system. He's holy, untouchable. We can't even be in his presence. We have a sin problem from Genesis 3 and the Bible forward. But God has set up a system where if there is an atonement, For our sin. If there is a sacrifice for our sin, then we can receive that substitutionary sacrifice. And that sacrifice is the Lord Jesus Himself. And He has come into Jerusalem and He's put Himself before Caiaphas and He's let Himself be arrested and He's putting Himself before Pilate. Because he knows the only way to redeem mankind is through his death. You can can pay the penalty for your sin yourself. You can. But that penalty is eternal separation from God in the place that the Bible calls hell. And that's why Jesus and the Passover lamb is such a big deal. You fanning makes me want to fan, (laughs) or at least get out of this coat. So, let me ask this question. Why is the punishment for sin so serious? Isn't death kind of a bit over the top? Why why didn't God just do something else? You know, if you just think about it. The answer to the question, we need to look at what sin is. Sin, it's not just a few little things that we've done that can kind of be overlooked. Sin, at its core, is a rebellion against God. And it is so serious because of the greatness of the one that you're rebelling against. It is God. Let me illustrate it this way. In most countries, the severity of a crime depends not just on the actions, but also on who you commit that against. So, we don't have a queen, but the United Kingdom does. In hitting someone in the United Kingdom over in England, it would just be considered a common assault. Probably not going to do any jail time for that. If you hit a police officer in England... That's a much more serious crime. And it's more serious here. But if you were to walk up and punch the queen in the face, you might land yourself in jail for a long time. The seriousness of the offense depends upon the one whom it is against. So my sin, my rebellion against you as a person... Is bad, it's wrong. But my sin against a holy God, it's heinous. My rebellion against Him is heinous. And here's the thing if you hear all of that and you still kind of see your sin as small, I think it might be that it is because your God is small. The crime really does fit the punishment. So why can't God just let us off? Why can't he just ignore sin? It's because he's holy, and his, holy, his holiness demands justice. I know, and you know, if someone shoots someone in cold blood and gets away with it, we scream, I want justice. We scream it. You know where you get your sense of justice? from your God, whether you believe in him or not. That is where the sense of justice comes from. So, do you see the irony in what's happening in this very first part of our text? The high priest, Caiaphas and some of the other Levites are taking Jesus to Pilate and they're asking Pilate to crucify Jesus what we know to be a Messiah and an innocent man. And they're thinking in their mind, later that day, here's what's going on in the mind of those high priests. We got to get this done. We got to get this guy killed because later in the day, I got to go get my sacrificial spotless lamb and I gotta take it to the temple myself and and do an offering for my family so that we can be forgiven for our sins. So we got to get this done. And I can't be unclean. I can't go into Pontius Pilate's house. And the reason that was is they believed that Gentiles going into their home you were most likely going to find something that would make you unclean. So Jewish rabbis and priests did not go into Gentile homes. They could be in their courtyard, but they stopped and they didn't go into the home. And it's because they're they're thinking, I got to do, you know, the Passover today. Do you see the irony? They have the Passover lamb in their custody. And they're taking him to be crucified unjustly so that they can hurry up and get their legalistic, justification through their Passover lamb John again said in uh, the John the Baptist in John 1 29 the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the most and this is I want you to hear this for, for some of us I just there's no way for me to know where you are But I want you to know that the most religious people in Jesus' time, the ones that were the closest to him and understanding the Passover celebration were the very ones who turned him over to be crucified. They were the very ones who could not see him. The problem with, well, with physical blindness I know I'm blind, or if you were physically blind, you would know you were blind. With spiritual blindness, the problem is you don't know it. They didn't know it. They couldn't see it. They were spiritually blind. Why could they not see Jesus, the Passover lamb, right there in front of them? Let's look, and uh, I think it's... Fascinating to me what happens in the rest of this story. In John 18, 33, look with me in your Bibles. I will say before I read that, in Matthew 27, 19, a parallel reading of the Gospels, I want you to know that this was going on in Pontius Pilate's mind. In, in Matthew 27, 19, I think Michael may have a slide, it says, besides... While he was sitting on the judgment seat, this is Pilate, his wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate gets this message all the while he's having this interaction with Jesus and with the high priest. Read this interaction with me, starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Honestly, I read a bunch of commentaries on this. Nobody knows really what Pilate's thinking, but what a question. He says to Jesus, what is the truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And here I want to say just a word about anti-Semitism. I've made friends with a uh, Jewish uh, Messianic Jew who has a synagogue up in uh, Marietta. And we talk sometimes about how people view the Jewish people. And it is interesting because right here... My question is, how did the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people miss seeing their Messiah? And you might not would know this, but the Old Testament never in one clear teaching talks about the Messiah coming. I'll get to something. You're probably thinking Isaiah 53. I'll get to that in just a second. What I'm saying is teaching that he came he would die, and he would be raised again. There's not one text in the Old Testament that has all three of those things in it. The texts are spread out throughout the Old Testament. It gives us glimpses and pieces. But even in Isaiah 53, in the original language, the word Messiah is never used there. Why am I saying that? Because it wasn't that simple for them to see this. And it wasn't until later that God spells it out in the passage in Luke 22:44 through 47 and also in John, but in Luke 22:44 through 47 this is what he said to his disciples after he's been resurrected. Even his disciples still can't see that he's the Messiah. And this is what he tells them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. So he's saying it was there were things written about me. Then it says, I want you to look right there. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Right here, Jesus completes the mosaic. He puts some of the last pictures in place and he's saying to them, his Jewish disciples, this is what I told you. This is what I told you was going to happen, but he had to open their minds. And then over in John 21, it says he had to breathe the Holy Spirit on them, and then they understood. This is my point. I don't think any of us figure it out. Not the Jewish nation, not the Gentiles. I don't think any of us are smart enough to figure it out. Ephesians 2.8.9 says it's a gift. That grace is a gift. That if you are sitting here and you know the Lord, the Lord himself has revealed himself to you. Oh, what a grace. What a grace that is. So, in an application and closing. Do you see Jesus now as the Passover lamb? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Passover lamb? Or maybe you're living in a legalistic way like the high priest, thinking that if you don't go there into the Gentile home and you don't do this and you do go to church every time the doors are open and you do this and you do that, then you'll be good enough. To get into heaven. You see. The gospel says this. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. I don't care if you go to church every day of your life. And you don't ever say a cuss word. And you're just the kindest most gentle person in the world. You will never be good enough to get to heaven on your merit. If you could be good enough. Jesus being crucified on a cross is horrible. Why would he do it? He would do it because one little bitty sin keeps all of us from heaven. God is holy and we are sinful. And we need the Passover Lamb as our sacrifice that we may enter into his presence and that 's what heaven's all about being in his presence and experiencing the beauty and the goodness and the joy and the fullness it's not even it's not even though I believe it's part of it, seeing our loved ones and being in a perfect place. Heaven is more about experiencing God at the deepest place. Because that is the ultimate treasure. The other stuff is fringe benefits. Just fringe benefits of being there. Let's pray.